start with to Matthew chapter number 6. Last week we talked about the various aspects of prayer. And tonight we're going to continue to think about the subject of prayer and the, I guess the title of the message would be Hindrances to Prayer. Hindrances to Prayer. In this chapter, especially in the first part of the chapter, the Lord gives some very specific instructions related to the matter of prayer. And then, beginning in verse 9, He gives us the model prayer. And a lot of times we focus in on what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer, as I refer to it as the model prayer, and uh, totally ignore what is said before and after. But all of this is important. Whether it's the verse before or the verse after, every single verse here uh, is equally important. So uh, tonight I want us to begin here in verse number 7, where the Lord says, But when ye pray, and surely being His followers we would, and when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Now, as I said, if this was not important, the Lord would have never mentioned this. And let me say, first of all, this does not prohibit us from praying repeatedly about a matter. I've I've actually heard people say that if we're praying in faith, we need not to pray about it again. We just take it to the Lord in prayer. We forget about it. We leave it there with God. But uh, some way or another, Jesus didn't get that message. Because the Lord there in the garden, it talks about Him praying, and then He goes back. In fact, just turn over there with me to chapter number 26, and I I want you to notice what happens here, because I, I think it's very important to us understanding what we're talking about. Uh, beginning in verse number 36, and then Jesus cometh, and then cometh Jesus with him into a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto his disciples, Sit ye here, while I go and pray yonder. And took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy, and, and, saith, and then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh and findeth the disciples and findeth them asleep and saith unto Peter, What could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, uh, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying, what? The same words. 
So whenever he talks about vain repetition, he's not talking about us never praying about a matter again. What he has reference to is the multiplication of words that do not add meaning to the request. And he's telling us that there is no need for that kind of repetition. And notice that he likens that to the chanting of the heathens. And that's what the heathens would do in their temples. And and he points that out. The heathen, notice, they think they'll be heard for their much speaking. And they get there and they just chant over and over and over. And they think that'll get God's attention. So although we are to pray uh, for the same thing over and over. I think if we know God's directing us in prayer, you keep praying till the answer comes. You don't give up, but you don't multiply words that do not in some way add to the meaning of the prayer. And I'm afraid a lot of times we get careless about how we pray. I remember what Lehman Strauss said many years ago. He was one of my favorite authors. And he said, it must be a frustrating experience for God to listen to millions of prayers that say nothing, ask for nothing, and expect nothing. Well, you know, I haven't talked to God about that lately. I don't know, but at least that was his take on it. And, uh, and, uh, and, And certainly the Lord does not want us just Adding words. You know, sometimes we get so concerned about making our prayer something that is flowery and impressive and demonstrating our oratorical ability and what have you to the point that after a while we just turn it into a garbled mess. It's kind of like the fellow that was going to publish a book, you know, and he needed some money. And so he wrote to the publisher and he said, well, how much advance payment can I get? Uh, for my novel of 50,000 words, and the publisher wired back, said, how important are the words? <laughs> we need to think about that when we pray. How important are the words? You know, we can get hung up, you know, on, on, on this thing, you know, of even using the Lord's name as a gap filler uh, in prayer. And I don't mean to nitpick about this, but I'm saying that we can use some very spiritual-sounding words in our prayer that do not really add anything to it or even put a greater emphasis upon it or anything. And and so useless words can be a hindrance to our prayers. He tells us not to do it. Secondly, turn to James chapter 4, and we're going to be jumping around tonight because there are seven or eight things that I want to talk about uh, that, that, that are hindrances to prayer. And here in James 4, in verse number 3, he said, Ye ask and uh, receive not. Well, they're praying. He said, You're asking, but you don't get, you don't get anything. And notice why. Because ye ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lust. You see, if our prayer is to be effective, then the glory of God has to be the goal. In fact, in everything we do, that is our purpose on earth. You know, as Christians, that's, that's our purpose. Now, we know what our mission is, right? The Great Commission. You know, that's the mission, but the purpose is what? The purpose is to glorify God. It's kind of like the missionary stopped at the church, you know, and laid out his heart. He's going to China, 
and laid out his heart and told about his work. And, you know, and this one woman came up to him and said, Sir, I presume you're going to China to win souls. He said, No. And she looked at him kind of strange and said, I'm not going there to win souls. I'm going there to glorify God. And it's my prayer that in the process, souls will be saved. Well, you know, he had it right. And so when it comes to the matter of prayer, that's the way that we ought to be. And that's why James says you ask, but you ask amiss. You don't, you're, you're not getting what you want. Why? Because you're asking for something that you can consume upon your own lust. And, and I think surely at times all of us are more selfish than what we would like to admit. And sometimes our selfish spirit shows up when we pray. And that can be true of even of things that are good. For example, a woman might be praying for her husband to be saved. Uh, that's something she ought to be praying for if he's lost, right? And uh, she can be praying for him to be saved... But a lot of times the motive can be wrong if her only reason is that his conversion will make her life easier. If that's her only motivation, she's on the wrong track. The motivation should be that God will be glorified in saving this man and keeping him out of a devil's hell and taking him to heaven. That ought to be the motivation. And a lot of times we, oh, dear God, please pray my, for, for, or save my husband. He's meaner than a junkyard dog. I can't live with that man anymore. I'm going to get a divorce. I remember years ago, in fact, I still remember the people's names and, and you wouldn't know them, but I'm not going to mention them. You never know where these recordings might end up or anything. But, uh, this fellow was a dairy farmer back in Missouri and, and, uh, you know, he was, uh, well, He's a typical redneck, I guess. He didn't claim to be a Christian or anything. And, and of course, she, she was in church. She professed to be a Christian. And uh, she would come and pray. And, and uh, she would ask me, Brother Stone, would you go talk with him? And, boy, we had some experiences out there. I chased that man all over, all over that, that farm. And by the, I walked through manure and everything you can imagine. And he is running and hiding in the hedgerows. And I, I chased him down. I, you know, I cornered him. I got to know him finally. And he, he got to, you know, to respect me at least. I mean, you got to respect a preacher that'll run through all of the cow manure, you know, and, and out across the fields and finally, Finally, caught up with the man, well, lo and behold, the fellow made a profession of faith, and I believe he meant it, and, and all, all of a sudden now his life has changed, and everything's wonderful with him, and she goes haywire. Why? Well, because, you know, whatever he got, he got too much of it. I don't want to go to church every time the doors are open, you know. And, and so her main interest is, you know, I want a husband that'll treat me nice and do good things for me, but I don't want somebody that's going to drag me to church every time the doors are open. So, you know, we've got to be careful, even when we're praying for good things, that we don't have selfish motives. And and there are examples of, of that in the Bible. You know, I know the Bible says, Delight thyself in the Lord, and He'll give you the desires of your heart. But that doesn't give us the right to be selfish. Somebody says, well, the desire of my heart is what? Well, I've been, I had this desire in my heart for a new bass boat. 
forever. And the Lord says, that, you know, if I'll delight myself in the Lord, I'll get the desires of my heart. No, that's not a license to be selfish. In Luke chapter number 12 and verse number 13, the man that came to Jesus with the request, and here's what he said, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. Well, that sounds somewhat, you know, maybe reasonable. We don't know all of the details or anything, but listen to the Lord's response in verse number 15. He said, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things he possesseth. So there there was a rebuke. I mean, the Lord knew his heart, and he understood that this man is wanting something, but but it's out of selfishness. And, and then you'll remember, you know, the, the, the prayer of the mother of Zebedee's children. And she said to the Lord, grant that, you know, my two sons might sit with you uh, in the kingdom, one on your right hand and one on the left hand, you know. And uh, uh, so you, you think, well, that, any mother would pray that way. But the Lord said, verse 22, he said, you know not what you ask. You know, and sometimes we don't either. Sometimes we don't either. We have no idea what we're asking because we haven't taken the time to examine our motives. Why do you want God to do uh, what you're praying about? You know, let's say you're sick and you're praying, Oh dear God, would you heal me? The doctor says I'm going to die. Would you spare my life? The question is why? Why should he? Why should he? I mean, that exact thing happens in the Psalms where the psalmist is praying that the Lord would spare his life. But then he goes on and adds to it, basically saying, Lord, would you spare my life so that I can keep your commandments, so that I can serve you. Now you've got a good reason for wanting to live. Amen? There's nothing selfish about that. But if, you know, if your idea is, oh dear God, save my life until the Astros win the World Series... (laughs) <laughs> you might be 200 years old, I don't know. Uh, but, you know, if, 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 if that was the reason, uh, that, that's the wrong reason, you see. Dear God, you know, I, 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 I've, just, I've got to win one of those bass tournaments or golf tournaments before I die. Keep me alive. Uh, so examine your motives because unnecessary things and useless words can prove to be a hindrance to your prayers. Now, Mark chapter number 11, verse number 24, here's the third thing I'll mention tonight, and that's the matter of unconcern. Jesus says, what things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. Now, that's a great promise, but a lot of times it's misunderstood. And I don't want to try to examine all of the whole verse or anything. I want you to focus in on that one word, desire. Whatsoever ye desire, and automatically we begin to think, whatever I wish for, whatever I hope for. That word desire means to crave, to beg, desire, or require. In other words, it's talking about approaching the matter of prayer with a sense of desperation. In other words, a lot of times in, well, football, baseball, or whatever it is, and you'll hear the coach say, come on, you've got to really want it. You've got to want it. And there's truth to that because you never play as good as you could 
unless you just really want it. You are desperate for it, kind of like the Texans coming up, you know. You reach a place of desperation where, you know, you've just got to have it. And that's the way prayer ought to be. So this thing of whatever you desire is more than just wishful thinking, just hoping. And remember, James said, The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And because that's true then the heartless, formal prayer of a person is going to be to no avail. I love what Rachel, whenever she said to Jacob, in fact, I've got a sermon on this, give me children or I die. Give me children or I die. She was desperate for children. And that ought to be our attitude when we come before the Lord. Now, we're, we're, listen, we're not dictating to God. Whenever it says come boldly before the throne of grace, it doesn't, it doesn't mean what Benny Hinn and some of those nitwits would make you think. You don't come before the throne of God in a disrespectful way, but that word boldly is implying that you don't need to be reluctant when you come before the throne of grace. After all, He is your Father. Come boldly before the throne of grace. And there ought to be this sense of desperation that, that, and, and by the way, if the Spirit of God is leading in our prayer as He should be, in, in other words, we're getting our information from the Holy Spirit, We'll talk about this later, but prayer is actually a circle. You know, it's God speaking to us by way of His Word and His Spirit. And whenever we're listening, we're asking God to do what God has already expressed that He wanted to be done. And it's a circle, and our prayer becomes effective. But we can't approach it in just a, you know, carefree manner. We've got to be desperate about it. Well, number four, here's the fourth thing that without a doubt, without a doubt will hinder your prayers, and that's an unforgiving spirit. Mark chapter 11 again, Mark 11, verse number 25, and when you stand praying, forgive. If you have aught against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses, but if you do not forgive, neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive your trespasses. Now think about it. Since we have received forgiveness, we ought to be quick to forgive others. I mean, how in the world can we withhold forgiveness from others when God has so graciously forgiven us? And if we have an unforgiving spirit, number one, if we have an unforgiving spirit, it's going to be detrimental to our testimony. Who's going to believe that we are a Christian when we're not willing to forgive others of their sins against us? So if we care anything about our Christian testimony, we'll be willing to forgive others. But not only does it damage our testimony, it hinders our prayers. And and when you think about what all depends upon prayer, which is what? Everything. Everything depends on prayer. And for our prayers to be hindered means that, that we're going to be hurting as a result of it. And so whenever we violate God's word concerning forgiveness, what happens? We incur a penalty. He said, if you don't forgive, I'm not going to forgive. In other words, we're going to reap the consequences 
of the sin that is in our life. And if we have bitterness in our heart or we're nursing a grudge against somebody else, automatically our prayers are going to be hindered. What will be like the, the, the slave that was on the plantation owner in Virginia many years ago I read about in one day? This man discovered uh, the slave reading his Bible, and he rebuked him. And he, he told him, he said, look, Sunday is enough time uh, for reading your Bible. The rest of the time you ought to be working, doing whatever. And, and so he, he whipped the slave and locked him in a shed, out there in the heat of the sun, in a shed, and later on up during the day, he happens to be passing the shed, and he overhears the the, the, the colored man in there, and he's praying, and he, he, he was praying that his master would be saved, that God would touch his heart and save him and make him a good Christian man. He wasn't praying, you know, Lord, help me get even with him, help me get out of here, anything else. Just, dear Lord, save him, uh, help him become a good Christian man. And uh, so the slave owner heard that, and it began to prick his heart, and he come under deep conviction, and later on was saved as a result of it. Now, you know, that that slave there locked in that shed could have, Cussed a blue streak. He could have said, you know, if I ever... He sitting there, just picture it, sitting there talking to himself. If I ever get out of here, I'm going to slit his throat. If I ever get out of here, I'm going to run. I'm leaving this plantation. I'm not going to subject myself to this kind of abuse anymore. I mean, there's no telling what, you know, uh, some might have said. But this man is praying, kind of like Paul and Silas in prison, Right? I've often said Paul and Silas wasn't trying to get out of the prison. They was trying to get in the jailer's heart. And they did. And they did. But they did because they had the right attitude. They were not bitter, not angry. They accepted what God allowed. And there are going to be times that people are going to hurt you. And we've got to learn to forgive people just like God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. Number five. And this is very closely related to what I've just said. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter number 3. 1 Peter chapter number 3. And uh, well, let's just start in verse 1. Because the fifth hindrance to prayer is an unsatisfactory husband-wife relationship. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won with the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation. And I think you all understand that word conversation means your deportment or behavior, not just the way you talk. And uh, so he says, verse 3, whose adorning let it not be uh, that outward adorning of the plating of hair and of the wearing of gold and putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, and that which is not corrupt, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, 
as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Now listen carefully. This is a tremendous verse. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge. That means understandingly or with intelligent consideration. Giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers be not hindered. You know, this just might be one of the main hindrances to prayer. There is so much marital strife today. You know, it's a wonder that some churches can function at all. Think about it. He tells the wives that they are to obey and reverence the husband. The husband is to honor his wife. He is to show her consideration. And whenever there's a breakdown in this... They pay a terrible price. I mean, we can't even pray effectively if there is strife between us and our spouse. Now, let me clue you in on a little secret. You would never guess it in a thousand years. There have been times that Bev and I have not agreed on something. <laughs> There have been times that we've been in a real bad mood one toward another. And, uh, and, and I'll tell you, the most miserable times of my life is when I know there is some friction between us. And <laughs> even though it's usually her fault, you know, it's... Uh, but, but what I'm bringing that up to say this, we cannot afford to let that carry over in, in, into the church service. We can't bring that with us. It's like the Bible says, let not the sun go down on your wrath. Settle up before sundown. And I'll tell you, I think, I really believe a lot of times some folks would do well instead of rushing to church in the heat of the battle you know, bickering one with another that maybe maybe sometimes couples ought to pull over in the parking lot at McDonald's and sit there and pray and forgive one another and get it settled and say, now, okay, now we're ready to go to church. Uh, you know, notice he said that your prayers be not hindered. I'm, I'm telling you what, if anybody needs God's help, it's parents. Parents are in desperate need of God's help to think about raising our children. And Satan's going to do everything within his power to ruin our family, to destroy our children. And if we can't get our prayers answered, we're in bad shape. Well, there have been some times, I'm telling you what, that I, I have, Bev and I both, and, and, and I, those of you that are parents, you've been there too, the times that you have just broken down, just it was the load was heavier than you thought you could even bear. You had a sick child or a rebellious child or, or whatever it was, and your heart was broken and you were pleading with God, Oh dear God, help my kid and, and just think about it. Think about it. What if God was forced to say no? And he says right here, lest your prayers be hindered. So make sure that the relationship between you and your spouse 
is what it ought to be. Number six, I've got to hurry. Number six, this is, I guess, the most obvious one, Isaiah chapter number 59. It's most obvious, but actually it ties together with just about everything we've said. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, neither is here heavy, that it cannot hear. But, I notice he's put the emphasis upon God's greatness The problem's never with God, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God. And your sins have hid His face from you that He will not hear. That's why the psalmist said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Remember in one of our earlier messages, we talked about what Paul said there in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 8, lifting up what? What kind of hands? Holy hands. It makes a difference to God. And there are a lot of times people will blame God because their prayer is not answered, you know, like God has failed them, when in reality it's because they have refused to deal with some sin in their life. And it says God's not going to hear us when that happens. James 5.16 goes along with that. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. Now listen, now we're getting into this business of, of physical healing. And, and he says the effectual fervent prayer of a what righteous man availeth much. And that phrase, righteous man, is so very important. I mean, just because you're a child of God doesn't mean you're on praying terms with God. The effectual, fervent person of a righteous man availeth much. Now, the other day I was talking about sin and the different kinds of sin. There are the sins of commission and the sins of omission. And, uh, 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 you know, a lot of times... You know, we think everything is fine and that God ought to answer our prayer if we haven't committed any certain sins. And at the same time that we're doing that, we're living a life of disobedience because we are omitting the things God told us to do. And it's dangerous. All kinds of sin is dangerous, whether it's an act, whether it's an attitude, or the absence of something in our life. It's a dangerous thing to not make things right with God. Well, number seven. Number seven. I've, this and one more, and then, I, then I've got to quit. And that is an unbelieving heart. And there, there's so many verses that, uh, you know, I don't even know where to start and where to stop, but I think most of you are familiar, more familiar probably with James 1 and verse 6 and 7. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. Uh, For let not that man think he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. And and there's many others. Hebrews 11, 6, you know, tells us without faith it's impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So unbelieving prayer is a waste of time because God honors faith. Now, let, let me tell you something. There are times, remember, God is gracious and God is merciful, 
And there are times that God answers our prayers in spite of our failures. By that, I simply mean this, that there are times whenever... Well, the microphone just fell out. There are times when God answers our prayer when we don't have as much faith as we should. And I'm so glad that God is gracious toward us. But our prayers are going to be more effective if we pray in faith. Now, notice he didn't say have faith. Now, this is important. He didn't say have faith, but he said have faith in God. You see, it's the object of our faith that makes the difference. The object of our faith. So what is faith? Well, faith is our confidence in what God has promised. In other words, it is our belief that God will do what He promised that He would do. And I think Abraham is a good example of that. He believed that even, you know, if he sacrificed his son, if need be, God would raise his son up. Why? Well, because he believed that God would keep his promise. One last thing quickly. Number eight, an unwilling attitude. First John 3, verse 22, And whatsoever you ask, Whatsoever we ask, we receive of him. Now notice this, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. So if I'm disobedient to God, then that means I'm out of fellowship with God. And if I'm out of fellowship with God, then it's going to hinder my prayers. Remember the, remember the story of, of Elijah and he told the three kings to go out and to dig the ditches. And he said, you go dig the ditch and God will... Uh, fill the water with ditches. You know, the problem with most of us, we don't want to do our part. Remember the old saying is, God feeds the sparrow, but he doesn't throw the worm in the nest. And that's right. So when we pray, sometimes we need, we need to put feet to our prayers. In, in other words, there are a lot of times, you know, people will watch and worry and wish, you know, but they, they, they won't work. By that, I mean, we can pray all we want. Oh, dear God, Save souls. We want to see souls saved at Lakeway Baptist Church. But if we don't, if we don't spread the gospel, if we don't witness to anybody, let me tell you something. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And we can pray, oh dear God, we want to see the church grow. We want to see it prosper. But if we don't invite people to church, if we don't bring people to church, if we don't do our part, then it's not going to happen. So an unwilling attitude can be a great hindrance to our prayer because a lot of times whenever we pray, it, you, you know, we, we just want to pray and say, Dear Lord, this is what I want. I don't want to do anything to get it, but I want it, and I'm expecting you to give it to me. Well, it doesn't work that way. We've got to be willing to do what we can before God's willing to do what we can't. So whenever we do our best to do what we know is the will of God, we have every right to pray, Dear Lord, you know, I've done the best I can in this regards, and now it's in your hands, and I'm praying that you will bless my effort and that you'll use it for your glory. And, uh, and I believe we can expect God to answer prayer like that. So, you know, I... I don't know, there might be a lot of other things that we could think about, but I think this covers the basics of things that are hindrance to our prayers. We can't afford for that to happen. We cannot afford for our prayers to be hindered. 
Got that report on Brother John, you know, the first report. John's got a spot on his lungs, you know. And we got the report on Chris the other day, you know. He's got blood clots, and we get all of these reports. Look, these are desperate needs. These are not little petty issues. We're talking about life and death. Uh, I got the email from, from Brother Mike, you know, just lost my job. Just lost my job. Put yourself in his shoes. That's not a pleasant place to be. You lose your job. You don't have any income. You've got a family to support. Now, what are you going to do? I mean, this is serious stuff. And so we, we just can't afford to let anything hinder our prayer life. And so if tonight, if the Holy Spirit maybe put his finger on your heart somewhere and touched a tender place about one of these areas, maybe, maybe before the night's over, you want to deal with that, that your prayers be not hindered. All right, let's stand together. Anyone have a final word before we dismiss?